There we go. From Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 46. And that will be found on page 1033 on your pew Bibles. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodonians. Teachers, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers amongst us. The first one married and died without having children. So since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother right on down to the seventh. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Well, good evening, friends. Uh, let me also add my words to encourage you to join uh, for supper at one of their homes tonight. Uh, if you've been coming in the last uh, three months or so, please come to our place. We're not too far from here, about 10 minutes walk if you don't have a car. Uh, Yvonne spent all afternoon cooking, so there'll be uh, chicken soup. Let me just, you know, 
<laughs> get you excited. Uh, I think garlic bread and some carrot cake and this and that. Please come, because I don't want to be eating all that stuff all week. Uh, but if you're a regular, please join one of the other homes, uh, join in fellowship, and hopefully this will be good for us, getting to know each other more, love each other more. Uh, but now let's keep your Bibles open. We're going to work uh, through this passage. Uh, we've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, and so today we're up to Matthew 22, the second half. Uh, but let's pray once again. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that it will not just inform our minds, but convict our hearts and change the way we live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, what is it that you witnessed this evening? We saw this thing here with the two girls and the parents, Matt and Steph. What did they do? They promised to raise up their two girls, Grace and Ruby, teaching them from the scriptures that Christ is their Lord and Savior. They promised tonight in front of God and before us that they will raise them up, praying for them, setting before them a godly example of Christian living. They're big promises. And so, Matt, what does that mean for you to live, be an, an example of godly living to your two girls? Well, it means, you know, no funny business, Matt. You know, none of this funny business that you get up to in the country, whatever you get up to in the country. <laughs> Steph, for you, well, I, I suspect you have no problem there, living a godly life before your daughters. <laughs> but of course, they're promising that, that they'll do these things, teaching them, praying for them, so that the two girls would grow up as faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that the two girls will one day embrace their parents' faith for themselves. Now, of course, it's also good for us to witness that. It's an awesome and joyous occasion to recognize that Grace and Ruby are part of the covenant family of God. They belong to God. But, of course, that's only from our perspective, those of us here in this church. In the eyes of many in our world, that's not how they see what, what we saw tonight. To many, in their eyes, to promise to raise your child in your faith, in your religion, to many people, uh, it's indoctrination. That's what they would call it. To many people, they would see this a form of child abuse. Isn't that shocking? Some would call this child abuse. It's a grossly misuse of that term. But have you heard that before? To raise up your child in your own faith is called child abuse. Have you heard of the famous atheist Richard Dawkins? He said that teaching children to believe your faith, your religion, that God is true, that Jesus is Lord, is a worse form of child abuse than physical abuse. I mean, who in their right mind would ever think about comparing the two? And so what are we to make of it? We've seen something tonight. Other people say other stuff about what we saw tonight. What are we to make of it? And so is it a, a good thing or is it a bad thing of what was promised tonight? Is it good to raise Grace and Ruby up as children belonging to God in the Christian faith? Well, you see, this passage tonight will help us. This passage, if we understand this passage rightly, if we understand what Jesus reveals about himself in this passage rightly, it's not only a good and right thing for the children, but it's a good and right thing for all of us, for all of you. You see, Dawkins was not the first person to be confused about Jesus. 
nor was he the first person to have a go at the claims of Jesus. There have been countless numbers of people in every generation for the last 2,000 years who've had their go at Jesus, who have rejected the claims of Jesus. And right there at the beginning, tonight in our passage, this, is, this was where it began. And so in this regard, Dawkins was, is not so special. And so what do we learn from this passage? Well, what we do learn from this passage shows us that what Matt and Steph promised to do tonight for their two girls is in fact good, is in fact right, and is in fact wise. So let's have a look at our passage. Keep your Bibles open to Matthew 22. Over the past several weeks, we've been seeing how the very leaders of the people of God, they've been trying again and again and again to try to trip Jesus over, to try to trap him in, to try to ridicule him so that they might kill him eventually. But what we see here in our passage, Jesus is like this grand master in chess, in the game of chess, always anticipating their move, always a few steps ahead. But now in this, in this passage, they move their piece, they make their move. And who do we see? Well, here we see the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, have you heard of the term or the phrase, a common enemy makes strange bedfellows? Well, these two were strange bedfellows, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They didn't like each other. You see, the Pharisees, they hated the oppressive Roman rulers, those overlords. Get rid of them. But the Herodians on the other side, they didn't mind the Romans. I mean, the Romans gave them their power and their privileges. Their king Herod was the puppet king of the Romans. But here, they had a common enemy. They hated Jesus so much more that they would work together against him. And so here they come together. It's a bit like, you know, playing chess. They're trying to get Jesus. They patronize him a bit, and then they ask him this question. Look at verse 17 with me. They ask him, well, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, do you see how that's a trap? It's in fact a trap. If Jesus simply said, pay the tax, then it would be seen by the people of Israel as unpatriotic, that he's giving his allegiance to a foreign power. But then if Jesus said the other thing, if Jesus said, don't pay the tax, then they would get him for treason. They would get him for treason. And it was one of the accusations they used against Jesus at his trial. And so they look like they're winning. They're trapping Jesus. Answer either one and you'll, you'll be <laughs> trapped. But, but what did Jesus do? Well, like always, this grand master in chess, always a few steps ahead, he saw right through their scheming. In verse 18, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And so they brought him a coin. And that there lies the hypocrisy. You see, the coin was a bit like this. What was unique about these coins was that these coins, these Roman coins used to pay the tax, had the image of Caesar on it. So the Caesar reigning at that time was Tiberius. And there's the inscription around the coin which says, Tiberius, son of divine Augustus, is a claim to divinity. And so uh, a devout, patriotic Jewish person would not even carry these coins around. It would be idolatrous to use these coins. They had to pay the tax, so they had to use it sometimes, 
but they would not carry it around. What did they do when Jesus asked, show me the coin? They had it. They carried it. They used it. They showed it to Jesus. But now here comes the awesome chess move of Jesus. What did Jesus end up saying? Look at verse 21. He said, give to Caesar, or more literally, give back to Caesar as an obligation what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? Well, if you look at the coin, Jesus says, it bears the image of Caesar. His face is on it. And so if it belongs to him, give it back to him. But here's the twist. Now you look at yourself. Look in the mirror and see yourself. Whose image do you bear? Who has placed his image on you? You see, what Jesus was doing here was, was not just attacking their chest piece. Jesus was positioning himself for the win. You see, Jesus was making a universal point here that has implications, not just about tax, but for the whole human race. And so Jesus, what he did here was appealing back to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 1. You remember what God said there in Genesis chapter 1 when he made human beings. In Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image. Not imagine, image, <laughs> typo. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And so Jesus is saying to them, all you people, you bear the image of God. He didn't make a silver coin. He made your soul. He placed his image upon you. And so you render what to God what is God's, which means you render to God your worship. The coin you have there, give that back to Caesar. That's Caesar's. But your worship, you give that to God. Even the Dawkins of this world must recognize that they are to render their worship to God. And so do you see what Jesus was speaking about here? He's in fact speaking about the doctrine, that is the truth, of humanity. The doctrine of humanity. Our whole existence is not for ourselves, but it is for God, whether you are Christian or not. It's what Matt and Steph have promised to do tonight. It's what we've been trying to do with our own three kids that God has blessed us with. You see, we know this, don't we? We are meant to live for God. We, we know this from our, our, our catechisms, if you know what that is. Sometimes on long trips, when we go somewhere far for a break, a holiday, and, and the kids in the back seat, they're a bit rowdy. It's noisy. I suggest this to them. I said, how about we play a game? How about we play a game and learn the Westminster Shorter Catechism? <laughs> I've got it on my phone app. And we scroll it. You know, that, that always goes down well. You know, forget the boring I spy game. Let's try this. Well, we did try for a while. We ended up at number six, but I'm not sure if we still remember it. But we do remember the first one. What's the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism? What's man's chief end? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I mean, that's what Jesus is calling us to do. We bear the image of God, and so we are to render to God our worship. See, nothing can give a hopeless, helpless child more dignity, more worth than for them to know that they were made in the image of God. Nothing can give them greater worth than that. And at the same time, nothing can diminish that worth and dignity of a child 
than to say, you know what, you're just the product of some cosmic accident. You get dignity when you're made in the image of God, not when you're not. And so anyone, in a sense, can choose to be like Dawkins, you know, to believe that we are the product of billions of years of random chance with no, no one to live for except ourselves. In fact, Dawkins speaks of us having this selfish gene. But in this passage, Jesus says, no, no. You'd be living the wrong life. You'd be failing in being human. To not even recognize that you were made by God for God, that, that is to fail at the most fundamental thing, at being human. You bear the image of God. You have dignity as a human being. You're not an animal. You have life because of God. That's not because of chance. And so you must live worshipping, not yourself, not your pleasures, not your comfort, not your career. You live worshipping this God who made you and left his imprint upon you. And so render your worship to God. But then... Like in the game of chess, it seems like they've just lost a chess piece. But then they now make another move. They use another piece. This time it's the Sadducees. Have a look. The Sadducees, they were these, the priestly aristocracy. What was unique about the Sadducees was that they only believed in the five, uh, first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in angels, nor did they believe in the resurrection. And so they, they were not good friends with the Pharisees. But though they believed in God, uh, they believed that this life is all there is, a bit like Dawkins. Now they thought here uh, of a clever way to try to get Jesus, to have their pieces in position. They thought they'll get Jesus this time with, with this scenario that they set up. And so let's have a look at the scenario. They're hoping that Jesus will fail this time. And so their question to Jesus was really, well, well what will it be like in hev heaven if a woman was married to seven different husbands in her previous life. Whose wife, whose husband will she be married to in heaven? You see, they're trying to set up this conundrum, this dilemma for Jesus. Well, try to answer that. And they're hoping that because this conundrum was so difficult, that it will prove that the resurrection doesn't exist. And so they've arranged their pieces in position. They thought they're winning now. Well, now Jesus makes his surprising move. It's his turn now, and they had no idea this was coming. He takes down another one of their pieces. He says in verse 29, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Jesus is saying to them, You don't even know the first five books of the Bible that you say you believe. You don't even know God. I mean, how can God, who gives life, find it difficult to raise the dead? And so verse 30, he continues, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. That is to say, the human institution of marriage will cease to exist in heaven. In heaven. Though Yvonne and myself, we're married and we hope to have a long married life together. In heaven, we won't be married. Just like the angels. They won't need to marry because their lives will go on forever, and so there's no need for procreation in heaven. And then Jesus continues, 31. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. 
He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus is pointing out from their own scriptures, from the first five book of the Old Testament. When God spoke to Moses in Exodus, 500 years after Abraham died, God didn't say, I was, past tense, the God of Abraham, who's now dead. But God said, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, which suggests that Abraham is still living 500 years after he died on earth. And more than that, Jesus is also saying here, it's inconsistent for you to think that God who gives life would be the God of the dead. John Calvin, he puts it this way. I, I like what he said here. He said, As no man can be a father without children, nor a king without a people, so strictly speaking, the Lord cannot be called the God of any but the living. And so do you see the point that Jesus is making here? He spoke about the doctrine of humanity. Now he goes on to speak about the doctrine of the resurrection. You see, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then that is to say anything that happens here on earth doesn't ultimately matter. But because there is this life to come, everything that is done in this world, in this life, everything we say, everything we think, everything we do, everything we believe matters. Why render to God our worship when there is no resurrection? Why raise our children in the instruction of the Lord if there is no resurrection? But the resurrection makes everything in this life important. And so Jesus, he, he beats them at their own game. Jesus still ahead. But now it's not checkmate yet. They have another go. They move another piece. This time they send their expert. You know, let's send the expert now, an expert in the law. Verse 36, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? You see, this was also a trap. It wasn't uh, a question where they wanted to find out the answer. It was a trap. You see, they've been listening to Jesus for a while now. They've been hearing from Jesus that you don't have to be good to get to heaven. In fact, you can't be good enough to get to heaven. All you need to do is to depend on Jesus like a helpless hopeless child and so maybe they're thinking this time we'll trap him maybe his answer will show that he's an apostate that he's a heretic that he does not believe in the laws of moses but then look at how jesus responds he wonderfully sums up all 613 laws into two verse 37 love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Notice the movement of Jesus. From the doctrine of humanity to the doctrine of the resurrection to now the doctrine of the law. This is how all people must live. Jesus came not to abolish the law but to fulfill it, we learned earlier in Matthew. And so now Jesus ha have them in their place. They cannot claim that Jesus was an apostate. He believed the law. He fulfilled the law. And so Jesus is gaining ground. But now the final move. Finally, Jesus now moves in for the checkmate. They've questioned Jesus enough. Now Jesus turns it around on them. He questions them. Look at verse 42. 
What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, that, that's an obvious question. They all knew the answer. The Christ, the Messiah, would come from the line of David. That's how the Gospel of Matthew began, with the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. And so they answered, verse 42, the son of David is obvious. But now here's the trap. Jesus turns the trap on them. Look at verse 43. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Do you see how that's a trap for them? Do you see how Jesus is cornering them now? You see, they have no problem believing the humanity of the Christ, that the Christ must descend from David. But what they didn't realize was this, that the Christ was not merely a descendant of David, but at the same time, the Christ was also David's Lord. Did you see that irony there? Both the son of David, but also David's Lord. That's what David confessed in that psalm. And so if you think about what's happening in their minds now, how is that at all possible? A descendant of David, but at the same time, David's Lord, pre-existent to David. You see, the only way that that is possible is that if Christ is divine as well. The Christ must be both man, that is a descendant of David, but also divine, David's Lord, pre-existent to David. So do you see what Jesus has done now? He's redirecting all their question, all their focus, to now to this point. He refocuses the conversation now on him. See, Jesus moved from the doctrine of humanity to the doctrine of the resurrection, to the doctrine of the law, now to the doctrine of Christ. This was where the real issue lied. They really didn't care about taxes nor marriage in heaven. They, they didn't really care about that. This was the real issue, and Jesus was addressing that. The claims of Jesus to be the Christ, to be both the Lord of David and the descendant of David, to be both divine and human. But now do you see how that reshapes our whole chapter? It reshapes how we actually think about our whole chapter. You see, what Jesus did here was so profound, it, it is checkmate now. If he is the divine son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, then Jesus is in fact saying to them, you know, you're the greatest commandment, the, the commandment to love God. Well, that is to love me. You know, the resurrection life that is to be. Well, that is to be with me. Do, do you know the worship that you are to render to God? Well, that worship is to be rendered to me. If you understand this bit, it reshapes the whole chapter. He becomes the focus. And so all this attempt of them to try to trap and discredit Jesus, well, Jesus now wins, and it is checkmate. And, and do you notice that they've got no more moves? Notice that by the end of this chapter? You know, a bit like the guy who was speechless in the parable of the wedding banquet last week. Here, their silence was their admission that they have lost, that they're wrong. And so we see that, verse 46, our last verse. Now, no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's checkmate. 
And now you see, if we understand this passage, that is the passage, Jesus is the focus, what Jesus reveals about himself. If we understand that, you can see why, rather than raising a child in the Christian faith, rather than calling that some silly thing like child abuse, it is the wisest thing anyone can do and promise for their children to raise anyone up in the instruction of the Lord, to raise any child up in the faith. That is the wisest thing to do for any child. And if it's good enough for children, then it's good enough for you. If it's good enough for all our little ones, it's good enough for you too. Because you see, what we learn here is that you too must render your worship to Christ. You too must trust also your future to Christ. You too must also give your love to Christ. And you too must submit yourself to Christ. That is the most fundamental thing in being human. Christ is Lord, and you are not. Christ is Saviour, because you cannot. This is something that all of us, not just children, have to decide. Am I with him, for him, under him, or am I like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and stand against him? Because, you see, if that is you, you're, you're in a losing game. One day you will face the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be just like them, guilty and silent. You see, this is something that Yvonne and myself, we have to seriously consider, not just for ourselves, but also for our children, how we raise them up. What is our grand purpose for them? When you become a parent, something strange happens for you, to you. You actually give all your attention, your focus, your energy upon your children. You want the best for your children. That is what, what we want for our children. We make sacrifices for them. We give them opportunities that we missed out on, and so the opportunities they have now to have piano practicing every night. That was an opportunity I lost, so I give it to them. But I do remember many years ago when Yvonne was pregnant with Esther, driving home one night. We were talking, and I asked Yvonne, how would you feel if our kids grow up not being smart? How, how would you feel if our kids grow up not being high achievers like what we strive for? How would you feel? I mean, we, we could have said, well, as long as they're good-looking, they'll marry someone smart, so they'll be fine. <laughs> but I did not think that. So how would you feel? Well, we talked about it, and we were resolved in this way. doesn't matter if they don't end up being bright. doesn't matter if they don't succeed in this world doesn't matter even if they end up poor but we will resolve that as long as they grow up trusting in jesus christ as their lord and savior that is all that matters and our job is done you see if that is good enough for my children if that is good enough for matt and steph's girls then it's good enough for you as well you see the wisest thing you can ever do is to submit yourself to Christ. Render your worship to Christ. Trust Him with your future and love Him with your life. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that each time we come to Scripture and learn of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see how wonderful and glorious He is, both man and God, both human and divine. 
And we thank you, Lord, that he makes clear to us that our intention and our focus must be upon him for us to be saved. And so we pray, Lord, that you'll be convicting our hearts in the right way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.